are dismissed up to Grace Place. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 is where we are going to be uh, this morning. So um, as we turn there, I'd like to thank um, specifically uh, Amy and Emily for putting together our ladies' event that happened yesterday, our women's staycation that happened yesterday. Um, we had like 18 or 19 women here that were, uh, it was a day of full-on just uh, rest for the soul, for the body, for the mind. It was a great day, a great night and uh, evening of fellowship and encouragement, and I've heard lots of great things about it. So um, thank you for, uh, especially Amy and Emily and everybody else who helped with getting food and everything else, thank you for putting that on. Thank you for uh, organizing that for us. Um, thank you very much. So um, we're going to be, as I said, in Mark 14. Um, and as we turn there, I want to start with Proverbs 18, which says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The reality of us being created in the image and likeness of God, one of the ways that plays itself out is that we are made for community. We are made to be invested and connected to other people. To think that we can do this life on our own is setting ourselves up for disaster and failure. This morning, we're going to look at Peter um, in one of the more famous accounts of connected to Peter. He's one of those guys that you look at the Bible and he gets known for either walking on water or denying Jesus. Those are kind of the two big things that we relate to Peter. And we're going to talk about the second one here today. Peter tries to make himself an island. He tries to stand up against the evil at play in the midst of these final hours of Jesus' life by himself. And he soon realizes it leaves him brokenhearted and weeping. And so we're going to focus on Peter a lot this morning. And as we study today's passage and we look at Peter, I am always reminded anytime I spend time studying the Apostle Peter just how much I am like Peter, just how relatable he is. And looking at him today, looking at what he does here in these final hours of Jesus' life, it always breaks my heart a little bit more and a little bit more when I think about how relatable Peter is to me. Because today we look at Peter at his worst, at his lowest and as we've done that, it's, it's been reminding me to say, I deny Jesus on a regular basis. But even though I'm like Peter, the other thing I am reminded of and find comfort in is that Jesus is more loving and more gracious than I could ever hope. So this morning, as we look at the Apostle Peter, I got, I got three words to kind of help navigate our time. Those words are arrogance, betrayal, and restoration. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in and get to work. So please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. God, thank you for today. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that every good thing comes from you. You are the one who pours out blessing upon blessing on us. It's in you that we find grace. It's in you that we find hope. It's in you that we find new life. Lord, we ask that as we pursue you, as we seek after you, as we open your word, Lord, that you would show up, do what you promised to do, answer the door as we knock, that when we come to you in our weakness, in our exhaustion, that you, we would encounter you and be wrapped up in your comfort, in your presence, in who you are. God, help us to, as we read your word, understand the parts that we don't understand. Help us to hear the parts that we might not want to listen to. Help us to be convicted and challenged and encouraged and in places rebuked as needed. 
God, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to go to Mark 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Before we get in, I want to focus on verses 27 uh, and following. But verse 26, when they had all sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This idea that Jesus singing a hymn, Jesus singing worship to his Father, uh, always just really strikes me. Um, if you're one of those people who, when you come into church, like you don't want to sing loud or you don't like singing, you don't think it's cool, you, don't want to, you think you're a bad singer, Jesus sung. Jesus sung out loud and proud. The scripture says make a joyful noise, which I lean into hard on Sundays. The idea of Jesus singing worship is always just one of those things where like, man, even when I don't feel it, I, I don't, maybe don't want to, um, it's something Jesus did. Something Jesus did as he enters into these final hours of his life, he does so singing praises to God. And that always sticks with me. That has nothing to do with the sermon so much as it's just, we're talking about Jesus singing. So verse 27, um, he predicts, he says, you will all fall away from me. And then he quotes the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 13. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What's interesting about that quote from Jesus is the I there, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, is actually God speaking through the prophet Zechariah. God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. God will strike the good shepherd. See, once again, Jesus' death is not happenstance. It is not a coincidence. It is an intentionally orchestrated series of events decided eons before any of us ever existed. Jesus is not a helpless victim, an oblivious bystander. He knows, understands, and willingly carries out the mission he was sent on, to be this shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And we see in verse 28, he says, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He tells the disciples, look, after these things happen, after the shepherd is struck, I'm going to go ahead to Galilee and meet you there. There will be darkness, there will be pain, it will be confusing, but the light is going to shine brightly. I'll meet you in Galilee. And if you go back to the beginning of Mark, you go back to the beginning of the Gospels, it's in Galilee that this whole thing started. It's in Galilee where Jesus stands on the shore and calls out to a bunch of fishermen, nobodies, and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's here where he calls a tax collector and says, just come. I know the reputation you have. I know the things you have done. Come follow me and things are going to be different. I'm going to show you what new life looks like. It's where the initial call to be a disciple happened. And then after the resurrection, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's going to be in this small town where the disciples will once again be gathered together by Jesus and called and sent out to proclaim the gospel. But as we've seen, as we've studied the book of Mark, every time Jesus talks about his upcoming death, the disciples respond poorly. Most of the time in confusion, oftentimes in silence because they don't want to look stupid, 
But also there's this disdain of the idea. We saw earlier chapters before where Jesus was talking about his death, how he would have to suffer and die, and Peter pulls him aside and tells Jesus, don't talk like that. That's not appropriate. That's, that's not what's going to happen. Don't speak about yourself being arrested and killed. And Jesus in that moment tells Peter, Peter, you are more in line with Satan than with God right now. Get away from me. Every time Jesus talks about it, it's not even that the, the disciples don't understand it. It's just that they don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It's messy. It's hard to fully grasp. And that's kind of how we still talk about it, right? We, we tend to talk about the gospel and we say, the gospel is God's love. The gospel is God's forgiveness. You are welcomed into the family of God. All things, all of that is true. But a lot of times we, for, we ignore that that forgiveness, that welcoming into the family comes through the death of Jesus. Even around Easter time, right? We tend to kind of feel like we get through Good Friday. But man, we will celebrate and rest in and rejoice on Easter Sunday. I mean, just even speaking for CF, I know we've done it enough times now that Good Friday service, as far as attendance goes, on the lower end. But Easter Sunday, we will pack this place out. Why? I think there's a number of reasons, but I think one of them is that it is our natural instinct to avoid pain, to avoid discomfort and conflict and being in uncomfortable situations. And that's what Good Friday is. See, you can't share the message of the gospel without the cross. And when you start to try and do that, when you start to try and preach a gospel that doesn't involve Jesus' death, you're no longer preaching the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We cannot hide from the cross and what's coming for Jesus here. He says, don't hide from it, don't run away from it. This is coming, and it's a good thing. It's messy and uncomfortable, and it grieves us, and it's hard to understand sometimes, but it is good. And so Jesus makes this prediction about the sheep being scattered, and Peter pushes back at that idea. He says in verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. Talk about throwing your boys under the bus. I don't know what these guys are going to do, but Jesus, I'm with you to the end. This here is arrogance. Pride and arrogance and ego. I can do it on my own, Jesus. I got this. I'm smarter, faster, stronger, holier than everybody else. The world wants to call this self-reliance, independence, resiliency. For Peter, it's arrogance. And this idea that we can do it all on our own, it's this idea that we can white-knuckle our way through life. Right, white-knuckle driving, where you're in the midst of a snowstorm or a rainstorm, and you're gripping the wheel so tight, you're so focused on trying to get to your destination, and you're gripping the wheel so tight that your knuckles go white. But you see, no matter how tight you grip the wheel, you aren't truly in control. Because you are one patch of black ice, you are one hydroplane away from disaster. But that's how we treat our struggles with sin. I don't need help. I don't need people. I don't need to pray about it. I don't need you to pray about it. I'll handle it on my own. I have enough willpower. I have enough strength. I know what needs to be done. I just need to work harder. I just need to try better. I just need to do better, and I'll get through it. 
And let's say you're right. For argument's sake, let's say you're right. Let's say if you just do better, you can get through it. You can fight off your sin. If you can get to the end of the day and your good outweighs your bad, then why did Jesus die? Why, when Jesus is in the garden praying and he says, Father, take this cup away from me, why does the Father not say, you know what, Jesus, you're right. I don't want you to suffer. This is going to be real uncomfortable. It's going to be painful. Why don't you just come home and humanity can figure it out for themselves? They're smart enough. They have enough tools and abilities. They have enough knowledge. I've given them my word. You come home and we'll let humanity figure it out on their own. That doesn't happen. You can't do it on your own. You are not holy enough to earn or win your way to God. Yet we constantly act like we can. I can get through this. I just need to do better. I don't need anyone's help, Jesus included. I don't need to show weakness. I don't need to be vulnerable with anybody else and ask for help from other people because they might look at me different. And I know the fellows in here especially hate to show emotion and vulnerability because somehow it makes you weak. Somehow it makes you less of a man or something. But we talked about it last week. Jesus was the manliest man who has ever lived. And he didn't hold back his emotions. He's in the garden and he tells his friends, I'm brokenhearted to death. I am distressed. I am exhausted. I need you to stay here and pray with me and pray for me. And ladies, you don't have it much easier either. You have this expectation on you to take care of everyone all of the time and make sure your hair is done while you do it. These unreal expectations of self-reliance You can't do it on your own. And that's why Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, because we need help. For Peter, it's not just arrogance. It's the arrogance of self-reliance. It says, I don't need anyone, including Jesus. Because when we try to fight our own battle, when we try to fight sin on our own, it's basically like saying, you know what, Jesus, thanks for the cross. Thanks for the resurrection. But what I'm struggling with is, is too big for that. There's still more work to be done. So thanks for the cross, but I'm going to do a little bit extra to make sure I'm good. No, you see, the cross is more than enough. And you are made for community. It is wired into your DNA. You are made to know people and to truly be known by people. To be open and honest and vulnerable. To engage with people beyond the surface level. You are wired for those kind of deep, intimate relationships. Even the introverts in the room. It's true. You might say, you know what? I've tried. I've put myself out there. I've been vulnerable with people, been open and honest. I've shared my struggles. I've shared my suffering. And all it did was get me pain and rejection and hurt. So I don't do that anymore. I don't put myself out there anymore because it just brings back pain. Show of hands, has anyone ever had a bad meal cooked by someone else? Whether family, friend, at a restaurant. Have you ever had a bad meal in your entire life? Did you swear off having other people cook for you for the rest of your life? No. Have you ever been in an accident in a car? Whether you were driving, whether you were at fault or not. Have you ever been in an accident? Did you swear off riding in any type of motorized vehicle for the rest of your life? 
No. People are going to hurt people. You can't stop that. I can't protect you from it. But it doesn't mean that the system is broken. You learn and you grow and you keep pursuing because you are made for it. And when you find real community, you will regret all of the time you spent trying to do things on your own. You are not made to do this life on your own. Christianity is a team sport. We are made to do life together. But the arrogance of self-reliance leaves you trying to fight the world on your own. Trying to do everything for everyone, and it's exhausting. And at the end of the day, it just doesn't work. You are not the exception to the rule. Ask for help. Be honest. Share your struggles. Be humble enough to admit that you need help. I mean, the very basic understanding of Christianity, right? The very first step they teach you in learning your ABCs to get saved of is admit you need help. Admit you, need, you have sinned. Admit your need for a Savior. So if you are in a friendship with another Christian, you have two Christians in friendship together, it's two people who admit that I can't do this on my own. I desperately needed Jesus to save me. That's the, the baseline of how we are interacting with one another. It's where you start. So why can't we do that with one another? Why can't we be open enough to say, you know what, I need help. I need community. Peter here decides he is with Jesus until the end. Regardless of what anybody else is doing, Jesus, I'm with you. And Jesus lets Peter know, well, this is actually how it's going to go down, Peter. You are actually going to deny me three times before the rooster, rooster crows twice. And Peter comes back emphatically. Peter's getting loud with Jesus. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. If I got to die with you, I'm not going anywhere. And we talked about it last week. It's easy to make that statement in a locked room during Passover, and it's a celebration, and everybody's together. But then they go out to the garden. The disciples are told to stay awake. Peter is told to stay awake and pay attention. And three times Jesus comes back and he has to wake them up. Peter, you said if I have to die with you, I will do that if I have to. Peter, you can't even stay awake for a couple of hours. And we know eventually Jesus is arrested and condemned to death. And that's where we see the betrayal happen. Skip down to verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with that Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This, is one, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So we saw the arrogance of self-reliance, and this is the betrayal of truth. 
While, Peter, while Jesus is going through a trial of his own before the Sanhedrin, Peter has a trial of his own down in the courtyard below. And to his credit, Peter didn't leave, right? Everybody else leaves. Jesus is arrested. It says they all scatter and leave. Peter follows at a distance. Give Peter credit where it is due because we pick on him a lot, but he stayed. He followed Jesus at a distance. It says he's warming himself by the fire. It's still the time of year where it's bonfire, it's bonfire weather, where he's sitting by a fire, and as he does, and the, the flames are lighting, lighting up those close enough, his face is illuminated enough where a servant girl approaches him. She sees his face, she connects the dot, and she says to Peter, you're one of his guys, aren't you? This servant girl is of no consequence to Peter. She's probably not even 13 years old. A servant girl, a slave maybe to one of, one of the authority figures that are, um, that are holding Jesus to trial. She has no authority whatsoever. Even the way she speaks to him is more of an observation than an accusation. It's like saying, you're sitting in a chair, aren't you? It's, it's not even a, it's, she's not making a demand. She's not making something emphatic. She just is making an observation. You're, you were with that Nazarene they brought in, weren't you? And Peter flips out. The way it's phrased, he says, Peter says, basically, I don't understand the question. I don't understand who or what you are talking about. I have no theoretical or experiential idea of what you're talking about. This question makes no sense in any realm, little girl. And so he walks away. And we see in verse 68, it says, He denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Peter, here's your chance, man. A little girl thought that maybe you were near Jesus, maybe you were one of his friends, didn't even accuse you of anything, and you flipped out at her. You pretended like you didn't understand the thought that she was having. Peter, this is only going to escalate. Peter, hear that rooster crow, because that's one, Peter. At this point, Peter, just leave. Don't just go to the gateway. Just keep going. Go back to Bethany. Go home. Do anything else, Peter. Just get out of there. I believe this first rooster crow is a little bit of God's grace to Peter. It's an opportunity for Peter to not end up walking down this road that leads him to denying Jesus. See, sometimes in the midst of trying to pursue something that's not good for you, something sinful or wrong, you want to go look at that website but for some reason your Wi-Fi just isn't working and you think it's just a weird glitch, you hit this little roadblock, this little snafu, it's not luck, it's not coincidence, it's God showing you some grace and giving you an opportunity to walk away. Stop and think about what you're doing here, Peter. Because he's got the chance right here. He denied Jesus once, the rooster crowed once, he's got the chance to walk away and get out and get away. For some of us, mindset we get into is, I've already sinned today. I've already messed up today. I've already chosen to do my own thing today, so what's the difference? I might as well just keep on sinning. I've already checked off that box for the day. I might as well just sit in it and just keep going. No. You can repent. You can walk away at any time. Over and over, Paul writes to the New Testament church. He tells them, avoid temptation. Flee sexual immorality. Flee youthful passions. 
And there is something to be said for doing so in your mind, right? Taking every thought captive, um, those things, renewing your mind, transforming your mind. But sometimes when Paul says flee, he literally means get up and get out. Go for a walk. Get away from the situation. But Peter stays. We see in verse 69, the servant girl now brings it up to the bystanders, other people sitting around. Says he's, he was with this Jesus guy. And Peter again denies the accusation. A little time passes and the bystanders are now getting in on it. And they say to Peter, you're a Galilean. You were one of them. Galilee was a little rural town. Had its own dialect. Had its own accent. Like if you're from Chicago and somebody talks to you who's not from Chicago, apparently we talk funny. I don't hear it. But there's certain things about dialects, certain things about when, with Galileans, it was something about not just that the accent was different, but the phrasing was different at times. So Peter, even in trying to deny, even trying to make himself blend in and not make a spectacle of himself, Peter, just by opening your mouth, just by being who you are, you have put yourself in the spotlight. And so upon that third denial, it says that he began to call down a curse on himself and swear I do not know this man. He's swearing that he doesn't know Jesus. This curse idea is that basically he's saying, if I'm lying, may something bad happen to me. He swears. He takes an oath. Right? I didn't do it. I swear to God. What's interesting about Peter taking an oath here, he's basically saying, I swear to God that I have no association with God. See, when you get so caught up in your own betrayal, when you get so caught up in your own way of doing things, you begin to justify your actions. No matter how ridiculous the justification is, you convince yourself that it makes sense. Peter is the first of the disciples to claim, to declare that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. Peter walked on water with Jesus. He watched him bring people back from the dead. And now he stands in this courtyard and says, I don't know this man of whom you speak. You look at the denials of, Jesus, the, of Peter, the three times he denies it. He doesn't even use the name of Jesus. He can't even bring himself to say Jesus' Jesus's name. And we see in verse, 30, in verse 72, after the third time, immediately that word that Mark loves to throw around. Immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered and broke down. Immediately the rooster crowed and immediately Peter knew what he had done. He had the chance to walk away or he even could have stayed put and answered truthfully. When they asked him about his connection with Jesus, he very easily could have said, I'm one of Jesus's. Yeah, you know what? I am a disciple. I'm in the inner three. I'm Peter. I'm the leader of the disciples. Jesus, if I got to die with you, that's what I'm going to do. That's what he said in the upper room. And then just a few hours later, I don't know this man of whom you're speaking. Three times he denies Jesus. Once could be seen as a moment of weakness and just tired and exhausted and a little bit of self-preservation. And once could be just a moment of weakness, but three times is an intentional choice to preserve his own life, to do what he believed was best for himself, regardless of his relationship with Jesus. That's easy for us 
to look back at Peter and to say, Peter, how could you? We sit and think, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have denied Jesus. No, I would have stood proudly and said, I'm a follower of Jesus. Had a cool Christian t-shirt on when I did it. But in reality, every day, we do the same thing. We do the same thing with our actions, with our interactions. We deny Jesus. We choose to rebel and to deny our identity every day. When we choose our way over God's way. When we sin when we aren't living as one who actually believes that Jesus is God, we aren't living as one who proclaims him to be our Lord and Savior with our thoughts, with our actions, our words, the arrogance, the pride, the jealousy, the hate, the lust, the greed, the lies, the self-righteousness, the idolatry, every day in a multitude of ways we deny Jesus. Regardless of whether it's public sin that lots of people see in here, or it's that private one that you keep locked up in your head, that the only person who knows about it is you and God, we are in fact no different than Peter sitting by that fire because we choose to rebel against God every day. And when you realize that, when you come to grips with that, you understand it is a completely normal reaction to break down and weep like Peter did. And so ends chapter 14. And really, that's the end of Peter in Mark. He's mentioned one more time, and we're going to look at it in a minute. Because we can't leave the story here. That'd be a real bummer of an ending of a sermon. But as I say all the time, this is not about Peter. It's not about us. The Bible, the Gospels especially, are about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has come to do and who he is. And so like I said, Peter is mentioned one more time, and I want to close by us looking at that. I want to flip over to chapter 16. We know after Peter denies Jesus, Jesus is eventually sentenced to death by Pilate. He is executed and he dies. He is taken down off the cross. He is laid in a tomb, and a giant boulder is rolled in front of that tomb to keep anybody from getting in or Jesus from getting out. And three days later, a few women come to wash and anoint the body, to do all the things. He was taken down, his dead body was taken off the cross and put in the tomb so quickly they didn't have the chance to go through the normal steps to prepare the body, to preserve it, to all of the different ceremonies. And so some women show up to do that, to bring spices and oils to help with the preservation of the body and all of those things. And even as they're walking, they realize they have a problem. So we're going to pick it up and look at verse 3. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. That stone is rolled away when the women get there. An angel is sitting there telling them Jesus is alive. Because the cross didn't stop him, the grave didn't hold him, and sin didn't defeat him. And he is exactly where he said he was going to be. He is ahead of them in Galilee. 
And we see in verse 7, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you. Go tell his disciples and make sure you tell Peter. Make sure Peter knows Jesus is waiting for him in Galilee because Jesus isn't done with him yet. Make sure those disciples who all fled, even though they all said they would be with him to the end, make sure, even though they all ran away and head for the hills, make sure they know Jesus is, with, Jesus is waiting for them. Even though Peter denies even knowing who Jesus is three different times, make sure they know Jesus is alive and waiting for them. It wasn't an accident that Peter just happened to slip up and deny Jesus. He intentionally, deliberately decided to deny even knowing who Jesus was. Tell Peter, Jesus isn't done with you yet, Peter. There is work to be done, Peter. You still have a responsibility, Peter. You have a role to live into, Peter. You still have a purpose, and God has a plan for you. Your life isn't over yet. There is hope to be had. There is grace to be found. There is forgiveness waiting for you in the resurrected Jesus. Your past sins do not define your future in Christ. You can't outsin the cross. You can't do something so bad that Jesus says, the cross did a lot, but I can't handle that one. Even when Peter and Jesus meet up, Jesus doesn't tell Peter, hey, Peter, look, you're forgiven, but you're not allowed to do ministry anymore. Peter, you can't lead anymore. You can't be an elder anymore. You just you messed up too bad. You're just going to be on the sidelines killing time. Now, quite the opposite. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, you are in charge, and you will spearhead the movement to bring the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, into the family of God. Go tell Peter his future is still wide open in Christ. Go tell Peter his past does not define his future. Brothers and sisters, your past does not define your future. There is grace to be had. There is hope to be found. There is new life to be lived, found in putting your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Not only are you forgiven by Jesus, you are wanted by Jesus. You are welcomed by Jesus. He wants you. And even when you fail, even when you sin, he wants you to come back to him. He wants to restore you. He's got a plan for you, and he's not done with you. I've talked a couple of different times about how I was, for a very long time, part of, uh, part of a small group, an accountability group in college, and then for many years after college, the same guys. Um, and one of the reasons we lasted for so long and we were together for so long was that um, it was about trust and it was about building relationships and, and trying to be in genuinely in community together. And when we would get together, we would spend time confessing sin to one another. And we would do this weekly. And I think what made it different, what, what made us want to engage with one another on a deeper level is that we would confess sin, and after you confessed, somebody else would look you in the eye. And let me tell you, it was hard. When you were the person confessing sin to your friends, it was hard to want to look other people in the eye. But you would look somebody in the eye, and somebody else who heard your confession would say to you, we've heard your confession, and you are forgiven and loved by Jesus. 
and by us. So go and live into the new life found in him. And week after week, I was reminded of that. And I was comforted by that. That while we are, there are always going to be consequences to your sin. There's always going to be consequences for your actions. Ultimately, your standing, my standing with God was not about how impressive I could be. It was not about me doing better or trying harder, but rather I was comforted in knowing that I could trust God. And that even when I did sin, even when I did rebel, when I did deny him and betray him, I could trust that he would and could forgive me of my sins. Not because of me, not because of anything I had done to impress or win him over, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, the price is paid, the curse defeated by the Lamb. We who once were slaves by birth, sons and daughters, now we stand. It's not about trying to be impressive on your own. Why would you try to battle Satan on your own when you can let Christ defeat him for you? Why would you withhold yourself from true, honest community? Withhold yourself from the opportunity to engage with the part of your very soul that was given to you by God that craves community. Relying on yourself is setting yourself up for destruction and for a fall. But let's be honest, even in community, even if you are the person who is engaged and vulnerable and open and honest, you can still fall, you can still sin. And when you do, remember God is still calling you. He's not done with you. He has plans for you to bring him glory. Yes, there are consequences to sin, but it does not ruin you forever. There is life, there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is grace always to be found in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Let's pray.